Hi everyone and welcome to episode 12 of the Judo Talk podcast. Judo Talk, Talk, 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 Judo Talk, Talk. Hey guys, so welcome to episode 12. Um, so I don't know whether you guys can pick this up on the microphone, but for this part of the recording, uh, well, to be honest, most of the podcasts I try and record from my dojo, um, and underneath us is like a dance studio, so there's some like classical music quite loud going underneath me, so I don't know if you guys can pick this up. Um, also, this week I recorded um, the podcast with my guest uh, in at home, so I don't know whether that's affected the audio quality or not. I think, I think it's still all right, um, but I don't know if you'll notice a little difference in that. Um, and it was slightly later this week. We, usually I like to try and record the podcast in the day, but it just didn't work out and we recorded after some training. And uh, so I, I think I'm most probably optimal in my working day between sort of 11 in the afternoon and maybe one in the afternoon. That's when you get the best out of me. So I think it was a really strange podcast it's one actually I really really enjoyed but I almost forgot that I was doing a podcast because I was just talking to a friend so this week it was Danny Williams and a couple of times I lost my chain of thought just because I was having a chat and uh, I forgot I was meant to be trying to conduct an interview uh so i'm hoping you guys still enjoy i think it's still i i think it's really good um i enjoyed the conversation it was really relaxed really um yeah i it was just a nice nice talk and i think you you guys will enjoy it but yeah if a couple of times you think is vince gonna actually say anything uh yeah well i do eventually i just i just forgot <laughs> so yeah no anyway i hope you enjoy this podcast um and I'll talk about a couple of things at the end but yeah Actually, I suppose I should give him a better introduction than what I did. So Danny Williams, um, I'm sure most of you will know, is a 2012 Olympian, Commonwealth Games champion. Um, yeah, I, I just remembered I forgot to introduce him, but here we go. Hey guys, and welcome to Judo Talk. This week, my guest is Danny Williams. Say hello, Danny. Hello, Vince. Hello, everyone. <laughs> right, whenever I get to that point... Everybody sort of forgets to say hello. Luke was terrible. He forgot and he asked me to get rid of it and I kept it in. Like, it's like I've not sprung this on you. Like you did agree to do it with me. <laughs> it's natural awkwardness, mate. I was natural. Yeah, yeah, naturally awkward. Uh, so let's start. Like, how have you been? Let's start off from there. How have you been over this last period? Um. I mean, the, the very recent period of being able to get back on the mat, um, at least with the kids. Um, I know it's limited numbers. We're limited to stuff that we can do. But honestly, it has been an absolute joy. I, I, until I think because kind of the lockdowns and not doing any judo at all had lasted for so long, I'd almost forgotten how much I really enjoyed it. And that's mm. not me training myself either. You know, I cannot wait to get back on the mat and do some Nagikomi and do some um, and do some Randori and stuff. But honestly, just being around other people that enjoy the same thing that you do, even if they are six years old, um, <laughs> as, it, 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 it's been brilliant. I think through the whole thing, 
I was kind of at a period where I, I so I moved, I decided I didn't want to fight at under 73 kilograms anymore in September of 2019. And I took, I took some time, which kind of, you know, I hadn't done so well in the Olympic qualification periods. Um, so that was kind of an easy decision. But when I made that decision, it was like, okay, I, I, I won't be pushing for the Tokyo Olympics now. Um, and it was so, it, like, it, it was six months away at that point. So I took that time to kind of just slow down a little bit, put some muscle on and then get, get ready for fighting at under 81 kilograms kind of, you know, towards, towards the mid middle uh, end of 2020. So I was kind of in a bit more of a relaxed position when all this kicked off. Um, and you know what, I tell you what, I, the, for the first time in my life, I felt almost lucky that I wasn't pushing towards the Olympics. I know so many athletes find that really tough, you know, constantly getting little bits of hope. There might be tournaments and things like that. You know, for me, I felt utterly, I really felt for them. I really felt for them because I know what it's like to have that massive drive and want to compete and want to fight and go for the thing that you're aiming for, but you know, but not knowing when it's coming, that must've been so difficult for them all. But, you know, for me, fortunately I was in that position. Um, and I, I struggled for the first couple of weeks of the first lockdown. And then I kind of, you know, went at some things that I'd always wanted to do. Like I've been, been quite um, consistent with a blog that I've been running on my website and things. And I wanted to start that up again. Writing is something I'd always wanted to do more of. I enjoy reading. So I got a chance to do more reading. I feel, I really feel like I, um, I took the ball by the horns, um, you know, with, with trying some newer things. Well, I know we've spoken about this many times before and it was really interesting and great to see so many clubs and coaches be really creative with the stuff that they were doing on Zoom. Um, mm. And, you know, it takes that sometimes, doesn't it? It takes a situation to force you to, to kind of look at how to do things differently and things. And, um, you know, I, I, I actually think it was a great growth period for me, for, 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 for people that we were doing on Zoom, getting a chance to really slow down. And, like even the most basic of basics, like how to stand correctly and how to move forwards and backwards correctly. Mm. do you know how often do we do we do we do we think of doing that or allocate time to it on a session not much um but then i will admit and again we we've had conversations haven't we it was like maybe it's because we could see a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel when they were talking about april monday april the 12th that you know we could start mm. moving slowly again but i definitely noticed like the last couple of months for it I felt like I'd exercised all the stuff that I could do online. So it kind of felt, um, you know, it kind of felt right to, 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 to start physically moving again and being back in the dojo. I just, I just hope now with uh, the May 17th changes, I just, I really hope the seniors can do something, yeah. even if that's just training with one partner mm. in, in one station for the whole session. And, but I, uh, there's no point in uh, speculating too much on that. We just got to wait and see, haven't we? So, yeah. How did you find at the beginning when you know? How did you find learning to use the online stuff? And because you were quite quick as well of putting up your like daily tips and that. Did you feel like because you had such a wealth of knowledge around judo, it was fairly easy to come by, or do? How hard was it for you? Um. I am one of those people that has like an internal magnet. Normally when I go near anything electrical, it stops working. So I was a bit sceptical about going onto 
about going on to Zoom and things. And it's like anything, wasn't it? It, it, it kind of um, it annoyed me for the first hour. And then mm-hmm. once some, my, my girlfriend at the time used Zoom, she'd been using Zoom for years, um, you know, with her work and stuff. So she kind of took me through it. And then it was fine. You, you know, we, me and you have been very, very lucky to have come through Camberley. You know, I've had Luke, we've had Mark that have shown us like really intricate little details that you can focus on. Um, and I also, I've, al- I've always taken interest in what other coaches do, judo coaches, strength and conditioning coaches. Um, and there was, there's a guy, so I, I did, I did like a series of things called kettle classes, which was like some simple judo movements that you could do while you were waiting for the kettle to boil. And I kind of half pillaged that off, off a guy called Steve Maxwell, who's really interesting fella. Um, strength and conditioning coach for, for many, many, many years. I think he was one of the first non-Brazilian, Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belts had wrestled um, in, in his younger years. I think he's in his 70s now and he's in unbelievable condition. Mm. And But he may, I, I believe, again, I'm, um, I haven't read his kind of bio for a few years, but he, he made his money through coaching kind of office workers and high-end business people and he would set them challenges like that. It'd be like you have to stretch your arms on the door frame every time you walk through a uh, every time you walk through a door. Every time you're waiting for the kettle boil, the kettle to boil, you sit in deep squat and things like that. So um, all that stuff came quite quickly, actually. So yeah, I feel uh, you know I, I took a lot of great ideas from a lot of people, but I feel like I adapted like like many people did quite quickly. Hmm. And we've coming out now. <sighs> I mean, people have asked me before, oh, you know, would you still continue with some of it? And ultimately, like, the first thing that comes to my mind is absolutely not. I absolutely hated it. Like, But it's difficult, isn't it? It was so hard. Do you think there's any part of you, if somebody said tomorrow, like, that's it, there's no going back onto Zoom, like, would you still consider doing some distance stuff like that if you had to? Or, you know, do you think... It, it's going away or do you think we're, it's going to stay around now? That's it. i tell you what I could take off Zoom and I'd love to take off Zoom is that bloody mute button. You're looking, <laughs> forward to, you're looking forward to getting back on the mat with the kids and then you have that old chopsy off. If you think, I wish I could just mute you now like I was doing last week. But um, I think some of the Tendoku Renshu stuff like the shadow were... I kind of sway yes and no with that stuff. I mm. think it is really important. But really, if you're on the mat and you can grip up and you can throw, it's like how much time are you really going to dedicate to that? Like, mm. you know, I, 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 I stick on my kind of rolling lesson, pl- lesson plans that I've got uh, with the kids here. It's like we'll do 90 seconds of that. We'll look at one basic movement, a session. Um, but, you know, after that, no, not really. I, it's judo, isn't it? Judo doesn't really change that much. The basics, the basics of judo and the high end stuff. If you look, there'll be the odd new technique that will come in that hasn't been seen for a while. But no, I don't think so. Mm. And do you see yourself now? How do you see yourself? Do you see yourself as athlete, part time coach, part time athlete, part time coach, more of a coach? Like, where do you see your balance now? Um, honestly, so I, I started judo with a guy called Roger Houston in, in, uh, in Bushido Judokai in Shrewsbury, um, like 1994 and pretty quickly because I was, a as a single child, 
just living with a single mum, like Roger would come and pick me up and I would go and help him with the earlier sessions beforehand. And I, I don't know why I'd always known and thought I want to coach, even, like which I know is quite odd from like the age of like seven, eight. I don't really, this might sound a little cheap. I just see myself as a judo person. Mm-hmm. Do you know, I think of all the really great judo people that I've known. It's like they could do it all. Do you know I mean? they, could do, they could do judo. They could teach it. They could explain it. They understand it. They still love watching it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like, to, to be really precise, of course, I have to look at that, that coaching side of thing because, you know, I want to carry on fighting. But, you know, at best, I've got a handful of years left in me. Uh, you know, I do have to seriously consider what I'm going to do after. Um, but I have always coached along alongside um alongside training and competing so yeah but i don't i honestly don't really see them as separate things anymore and i, I you know technically technically i'm still not certainly not the best in the world um but i've come on a long way in the time that i've been in, been in camberley um but coaching alongside training and things and having to break techniques down my god i've learned so much so much about technique from having to coach it mm. you know and i think that's the problem with, with sometimes not all of them but some really high-end players like you, you'll see them try and explain a technique and then they'll do it at full speed and it looks totally different to the way that they've just broken it down and you know and i would you know i would you know i'm not a uh, i don't see myself as like a world-class fighter i've beaten some world-class fighters in my time but you know i was kind of um at, at my best like if you're going to look at it in football terms, I was probably like a good championship player or a low level premiership player, maybe. Um, but yeah, and, and I would do that. I would try and like early when I was coaching, I'd try and break something down. And I'm thinking, Hang on, I don't fully understand this, actually. I'm stood here trying to explain it and I can't. Um, and that's that's helped greatly. And when you're... Thinking- how, how did you find that, by the way? How, were you like that? Because you were doing the same, weren't you? You were coaching while you were competing. Yeah. And I think I think my advantage was is I spent most of my time injured. <laughs> so like <laughs> even though I was full time in that, and it gave it gave me a lot of time to be reflective on my judo. And I'm sure I spoke about this before. Like I found like I done a lot of uh you know, I used to visualize a lot when I was injured and that for me helped me quite a lot go into coaching but there was a point where I'd start to try and talk about things and realize well apart from what I'm being told I don't actually know anything different so I did go into a little journey of well why do you do this why do you do that Um, and there's some things that you can just steal because they're so good like there's some things that like especially with some of the coaches that we've been lucky to work with but when you get to working with kids I think it really it forces you to start prioritizing what's important in learning you know what is important do they like how much do they need to know how to do a drop scene Aggie over actually standing up, getting good posture, good movement, Sugiyashi, you know, the, the fundamentals. And I think, I think, yeah, I think actually the biggest help for me coaching was the fact I was injured because I did think about judo an awful lot. And mm-hmm. I, I was lucky, I think, because I, um, I did love judo. 
And so I would watch a lot of it and I spent a lot of my time watching and thinking about it. So, yeah, so I think, yeah, sadly enough, my, my coaching career was sort of well in front of me whilst I was still a player, which wasn't easy. Um, but yeah, no, so that, yeah, I suppose that, yeah, that that's the difficulty on that one. I found that quite tricky, but when you're, when you're thinking about your coaching now, how does it differ to how you done judo? Because for me, you were one of the things I liked about your judo. It was really hard. It was a hard fighting style. And, you know, if we were doing round Dory, I knew I couldn't just have a rest when I was fighting you because I knew you were going to have a scrap. So how does that, how does that work now with your coaching style? How do you think about how you done judo? Is there any difference to it or? Yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, for me, um, you know, I grew up in rural Shropshire. There were, you know, the closest really, the closest strong competitive club was Wolverhampton. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I didn't go there until I'd been doing te- uh, judo for 10 years already, you know. So kind of missed out on a lot of that, you know, strong technical stuff early on. Um, and I had to compensate for that, you know, and just fighting people hard and being fit and, and, and strong. You know, and that will get you get you a fair way. I think that that, that was a, that was a good base to have. Um, Is that why you wore a Burberry cap quite quite a lot when you were younger, just so you could get in more fights? I think it was Burberry's, mate. Yeah. I was off the market for a fiver. <laughs> <laughs> Not that I told anyone that I unpicked the S on the end. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, and I think oftentimes. You know, and this is something I remember, although it's not fully related, but Luke said this to me, you know, I, I used to struggle more against left-handers. Um, mm. And I think I actually prefer fighting left-handers now. And he, he said early on, he's like, often the stuff that you're initially weaker at, because you have to really hunt it out and practice it, it becomes one of your better, becomes one of your better attributes. Um and I'm certainly not going to turn around and say I'm the most technical player or, or coach. You know, I'm still a young coach, and there's there, there's some fantastic coaches that that, have, that are at Camberley that have come through Camberley, um, and that are in the, that, that are in the country that I can, you know, that I kind of look up to and take ideas off and and and, and stuff. But I definitely feel like getting that mix of. Because it's a fighting sport. At the end of the day, it's a fighting mm. sport. People have got to fight and have that right attitude to be able to fight. But you need both. If you want to be really successful, you gotta you gotta you gotta have both later on down the line. And that's if the kids want to be competitive. The main thing for me is that they enjoy it. But most mm. kids that come to judo come because they like having a strap. Mm. You know, so it's kind of it's also for me, it's not um it's learning that balance of like installing the right fundamentals, but also remembering when I was eight, I wouldn't, do you know what I mean? I just wanted to fight. Mm. I wanted to fight. So it's also not kind of overloading them with too much technique and then starving them from, you know, having a, having a wrestle and a tussle and the thing that they want to do. I think I found that difficult actually when I first started coaching. Um, Cause I remember, so for people listening, like Danny and I have known each other for quite a long time now. And, I remember when we were on the squad, when we were young, it was part of the culture. And where I grew up, it was, you know, you didn't really have much technique either. It was just pure fighting. And it was definitely encouraged at 
a younger age when we were sort of 12, 13, 14, 15, moving through sort of the cadet age group, actually there was a lot of emphasis on fighting hard, you know, and really hard. And that was something that came quite natural to me when I was younger. But when I started coaching, I noticed the kids didn't quite have the same mentality. Yeah, I mean, I don't know whether that's, whether society has changed, what you can, how you can train people. Um, I can't fully put my finger on, on, mm. on what that is. I don't know, there's, there's still some really good kids out there. There's still some really good juniors. There's still some really good young seniors. Um, yeah, yeah it's, I... been said, it's been said before about the club system um, and how that's been not, uh, not deteriorated because, again, there's some really passionate and, and passionate club coaches, some great clubs, some really strong clubs, some very knowledgeable club coaches as well that are out there. Um, but it, like the heart of England, for example, you remember fighting that and it was like, mm. you know, that was just a domestic event and there was eight mats and it was rammed. Mm. Um, so you kind of had to fight for everything. You had to fight for a place on your county squad to then fight for a place on the area squad just to qualify for the nationals. Mm. Yeah, I don't yeah. think I don't think I I'm trying to say it's not as good anymore. I'm just trying to say it was different for me. Like I didn't realize it was how important being able to relate to people from different um you know different mentalities I guess is uh, you know cuz I I pretty much liked the fight. And when you're starting with young kids, it's not, that's not what they want, you know, to start with, they want to enjoy it. And that took, I think that was quite an evolution of learning at the beginning. And now actually takes quite a big part of what I do is creating that enjoyment. And I think, yeah, I think what I was most probably trying to get to is it, it took me by surprise when I first started coaching. Yeah. I, I think it's different, like with us where we've, you know, we've trained full time. We've pushed to be as good as we can be on the international scene and things like that. And it's like, you almost want that for the kids, don't you? It's like, mm. oh, I want to do this and that. And it's like most of them, most of them turn up and all they're thinking about are what fizzy sweets they're buying from the bar after. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, that's their fit. And you kind of have to, I think, keep them bloody in it. Mm just keeping them in it just being there making the sessions fun installing some good basics letting them fight being a being a good role model for them um whatever that looks like yeah and you go from there i and one thing i've noticed with some of the kids coming back is like you know the difference you can see in kids sometimes if they go they go away for a few few weeks during the summer holidays and they come back and it's like they're bigger they're strong they seem more mature with with that 12 months kids walking back in onto mat it's like they're a different person mm. it's like they're a different person so you kind of never know you never know what's going on in their outside lives what's going on at home you don't know who they're gonna develop into mm. yeah yeah i think you're right i think as well i i want to talk a little bit um because we discuss this as well about full-time because i know you said before how not many people really understand what it's like to be full-time so when we knew each other when we were younger and then I I remember seeing you again it was and correct me if I'm wrong you were dressed as a gorilla at a Cambly Christmas party and then was it you joined after that didn't you you come into full-time 
was it after that party was that the party that converted you to want to do full-time yeah so i mean just going back to that party yeah it was no no one sent me the memo that it was meant to be a christmas themed fancy dress <laughs> rocked up in the gorilla rank <laughs> <laughs> and you drove there in that, though, didn't you, from Shrewsbury? You did drive to the party in that. Yeah, I was being efficient. <laughs> being efficient with my time. It's a long drive, that is. Um, so I'd started to think about full-time from around the 2007 time. So I officially moved down in March 2009. But kind of, I was doing a plastering apprenticeship like there was no real where I was in the Midlands. There, there was no full time really going on there. They did a little bit at Warsaw University. Um, this isn't the, the, the what it is in the same place where the National Centre is now, but they were running it there. It was like Mac Abbott's and Fitz, Fitzroy Davis, um, you know, and there were people like Craig Fallon there. There was Gav Davis, Nathan Burns. I would go in for a couple of days a week. Uh, did that for a little bit then I cracked on with my pastor and apprenticeship and I was still training at Wolverhampton most evenings and I started to feel like with the London Olympics being announced in 2005 it was like Beijing 2008 was close and then London was going to be the next games and I, I really wanted to go um, you know as, as any judo player wants to they want to go to the Olympics they want to try and win a medal um, and I I kind of started to feel like time was running out and, you know, as a cadet, I mean, as you'll probably remember, as a cadet and a junior, like some, some years I would scrape onto the British team and then other years I wouldn't get on. And yeah. a lot of the time I got a bit of a kick in, actually, against the better lads in the country. I remember being on the end of a few Yorte groomers a few times back in the day. Um, <laughs> you can't do that now, by the way, Vince. Yeah, cheers, mate. <laughs> and then it kind of... No one, I, I managed, I scraped a bronze at my last junior trials. And then the other lads got sent to some of the like junior A tournaments back then or junior World Cups or junior European Opens, whatever they're called now. Um, and they didn't do anything. And the, like the last one was Poland and I got sent. Uh, Owen Livesey and I actually got sent. Um, and I got fifth. And that kind of gave me belief. And that was the first time I'd really done anything internationally. I'd done some senior B tournaments or European Cups, and got, got a shoe in. And that kind of really made me start to, I was like, I know, I know I've been working as hard as I can, and it just kind of gave me a little bit of belief. And then I started working with Luke. Luke was the support coach for the junior team at that time, started doing some work. Actually, before, and so off the back of that, I got selected for the Junior Europeans and Junior World Championships. And in preparation for the junior worlds i came to camberley for a couple of weeks and really enjoyed it um and then went to the junior worlds that that was pretty close to the end of the year and then i started traveling still doing a bit of work i started traveling down three days a week from january 2009 and they used the english open no one really did anything in 73s senior so i was on the senior team um at this point because back then uh, if you were junior number one, you got a year's grace. So you went on to the senior team for your first senior year. And, and after then, you had to get a medal at the trials. It was, it, it was pretty simple. Um, and they, so no one did anything in 73s. They used the English Open as the selection for the Europeans. And that the English Open was held in March. And I, I didn't medal. Um, 
And I just decided there and then in the changing rooms that day, knowing that there was like four people ahead of me in the way, it was like, I've got to be full time now and went home from that tournament, packed all my stuff and relocated to Camberley. That's pretty big, isn't it? Quite a big decision to make. And so when you, what's it like a right? Well, I know what it's like, but I want you to describe what it's like when you sort of first walk through the doors, knowing like you've got all your stuff in your car and you walk in because obviously it's five star it's quite nice and <laughs> so yeah what's it like when you first make that decision as as an athlete to take your career seriously like because there's gonna be plenty of people that don't really understand what you walk into and what you're what you're facing yeah i mean it's something that's not really I mean, even within the judo, so, you know, I've been reading Mark Law's Pajama Game at the moment, which is brilliant. And in that, he said, like, um, I think Danny Kingston was demonstrating a strangle at the Budokai. And he, he said, oh, that, that worked for me in Russia at the weekend. And then they kind of got talking a, a little bit about kind of the ins and outs of judo. And Law actually says in that something along the lines of, like, not only did I realise that the sporting world knew nothing of what judo players go through, even like most of the judo community don't know either, you know, and for me, even just making the decision was a big, big, big decision. You know, mm. it was just me and my mum growing up. We were very, very close. The small family that I've got in Shrewsbury, we were very, very close. I was doing a plaster and apprenticeship. Um, you know, it took me 18 months to make that decision in the end. It was a hard decision to make, but then, you know, I did in the, made it and I turned up in Camberley and I think I was kind of lucky I'd had that three months or so of coming down each week for a few days um but kind of when you move in like for people that haven't been to Camberley the the accommodation block is two renovated porter cabins or like old portable classrooms that have been been stuck together pretty pretty well back in 1998 um and it's like dorm rooms so I was in for the first four years I was in a small room in a bunk bed um, you know, I had the bottom bunk. I, you know, showed my authority and had the bottom bunk. <laughs> well done, mate. Like small room, yeah. And it's five meters from the dojo. You know, you literally live in in the judo club. And you know, I lived I li just shy of nine years. I lived I lived in in that porter cabin. Um, you know, needs must. But I had time. I spent my savings in the first first twelve months. Remember, I spent my last bit of savings going to a trip to the Ukraine actually Chris Bowles and Carl Finney took us out there um, you know and, uh, Carl's son Danny was, at, was was training at the club at that time and spent my last 500 quid of my savings that I'd saved up during my classroom apprenticeship on a trip out to the Ukraine to uh, Georgi Zantaraya's club which which was brilliant and then after that point I think I had a, I had a period on the dole um, and I really threw myself into it and kind of I was fortunate that at that time in, in the under 73 kilo category, there wasn't a Ewan Burton, you know, who was in the one weight above winning, you know, winning two world medals and three European medals and qualifying for two Olympics. There wasn't anyone like that. 73s was a lot more open, mm. you know, and within a year of, um, within a year of being at Camberley, you know, I, was, I, I was British number one. And then I managed to get a little bit of, I took a seventh place at the, European Championships, which got, which at the time got me onto a little, a little bit of funding, which kind of made life just a little bit easier. So when, just going back to the accommodation a little bit, because I think you can do a better job at 
sort of describing it because I think a lot of people will have in their minds like what it's like. So when I moved to Cambly in 2005, I was told it was being knocked down, the port cabin that we lived in. <laughs> so in 2005, I was told that it was being knocked down. And for me, the best analogy I can give of it is like Trigger's broom from Only Fools and Horses. You know, yeah. where he says it's the same broom. I know that's going to lose a lot of people, but it's been stuck together with so many different parts now, hasn't it? You know, and so everybody chains together, don't they? And what, you know, talk about the the living accommodation and stuff like that similar to you so i moved in 2009 it was like i remember a few of the like luke didn't say this or i got might have been nathan burns was like oh yeah we're getting a new place built next year i think that's yeah. how that's the line well it works fair play it works um but you know what needs must. I tell you what, that that place makes people as well. Mm. You know, I remember a few of the um, few of the posher lads. I'll say on the on the team, we'd go to we'd go to Paris, and you know those like Formula One ETAP hotel. They're like how I imagine a room in a mental hospital to be. <laughs> They're all moaning about oh, it's horrible. I think roof's not leaking. Yeah. Clean toilet. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Spot on. This is this is brilliant. Um, it definitely humbles you and it gives you a bit of drive and things. But yeah, so um, I mean, the club are brilliant. The club spends so much money on keeping people living here as well and raising funds to do it, to fix the roof, to fi fix the walls. Because, you know, I think, I think Luke, Luke had told me before it was, it was second, the, the port cabins were second hand when they were first mm. purchased in 98. And they had like another 10, another 10 years of life. Yeah. Well, they were told they had another 10 or 15 years of life. So if you think they're kind of, you know, well over that. Well, they're, yeah, nearly older than us, aren't they? So. But you know what? It enables people to train full time. It enables people to train full time. So it's a bloody good thing. And what's, what's training? Give people a little rundown of like training on a, on a daily basis. So a typical day at Camberley is, is three sessions a day. Um, you would look at, we would be doing something like uh, normally strength and conditioning first, and that would start at 10 o'clock, um, depending on what that looks like. If that's a strength session, that could be anything up to 90 minutes. If it's a fitness session, it could be anything up to towards an hour. Um, then you have a, just a tiny little bit of break, maybe just just get a quick bit of energy foods into you and then a technical session for around anywhere between 45 to 90 minutes depending on whether that's like personal drills or skill acquisition work where Luke, Luke would be delivering techniques um, so that would wrap up at around half one shower lunch then you have a, a fair bit of a break and for most people that involves some form of paid work now, everyone at the club is, is self-funded you know in the current situations but even kind of back when the funding opportunities were, were more widely spread across the country, it's like, you know, to get to a position where you get funded, you've got to be pretty good. So you kind of, most people need to put a good hit in. Um, so anyway, people go out to, 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 to work and earn money and things. And then at eight o'clock is, is Randori for, you know, anywhere between 90 minutes to, to a couple of hours. So it's a, it's a busy old day, busy old day. And that's typically Monday to Friday. And then, some form of recovery work over the weekend. And how much are you in charge of what you do now? So 
thinking about when you first come to Cambly to where you are now as a, a seasoned athlete, like how much control and autonomy do you over have over your, your sessions now? Looks really good with the uh, with the older athletes. It can kind of go a little bit more to feel. Like still do the main um, the main randori sessions. I still do a couple of technical a week. I still do a couple of um, strength sessions a week, and then kind of the conditioning stuff um, will be mainly be based around um, when when events are coming up. And I enjoy that. Um, and it, it, it's different for what because you've got some some maturer athletes as well. Like you've got Ashley, obviously Ashley McKenzie in. Ash needs a bit more um, of a rigid program that Luke fully oversees. But then you've got other people like Fraser Chamberlain as well. Um, you know, so that's kind of it gets slightly more individualized as 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 you get a little bit older. Um, you know, but for for a long time, just completed the the the, the, the normal training program like like, like the whole group. Mm. and do you think you will get back compete like what is the aim now with your competitions are you just gonna wait and see or you know are you thinking about the commonwealth games again like what what are you thinking about honestly i a few a few of the retired fighters from camberley um i'd spoken to in the past particularly uh, Jim Warren, John Buchanan, obviously Luke as well, you know, kind of about finishing. And a, a few of them were kind of like, I wish I'd have done another year. I think we get 10, we tend to get wrapped too much into Olympic cycles. I, I'd say too mm. much, but that, that's just, just my view of it. And it's like, well, actually, you look at plenty of players where yeah, a European medal is the defining medal of their career, a world medal is the you know they're, they're bloody art medals I haven't got yeah I haven't got one of those um, every year you know what I mean so for me I'm at a point now where I'm going to try I'm going to try some events like ideally I would start with some with, with some domestic events and then go from there but I think there's going to be some European cuts towards the end of June I'll go and give those um a whirl at 81s, do some domestics, and then I'll just see how I feel. But I feel good, and I'm I'm enjoying judo now more than I ever have. Mm. Um, and the and the whole process of it, I don't want to I don't want to bite off more than I can chew. Like I said, I will just go and do some events and, and, and see where I feel. The one thing that nags a little bit is, you know, I'm 32, I've trained full time for, for for 12 years. I've been a self-funded athlete for eight years. Um, honestly, the only thing that that like weighs a little heavy is thinking about having to fund all the tournaments again. You know, and he, and I say that, and it's not like I'm putting my hand in my pocket for every single one. We find sponsors and things like that, but there's not always a load of security and that you're always kind of having to think ahead into the future. It's like, all right, I'm all right for this tournament. What about the next camp? What about the next tournament? What about the one after that? So that's the only one that weighs a little heavy. Like I'm at a point now where I do want to, I do want to stick some money together so that, you know, I can start working towards having my own property someday. And I feel like I've, I've lived quite a frugal lifestyle for quite a long time. Um, so that's the only one thing, but actually within the enjoyment of the sport and, and of 
training and fighting and 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 going through the process yeah I, I, I still love it I do think especially within British judo like players can go on like and still you know when I think about some of the athletes that have got European and world medals they're not they're not spring chickens. Like, how old was Colin Oates when he got his European medal? He wasn't young, was he? He was 32, I believe. Yeah, yeah John Buchanan wasn't young. You were, you know, I'm not saying that everybody everybody um, gets their success later on, but I definitely don't feel, and I, I know it's quite ironic, actually, because I stopped competing at 24, so I understand that. But I don't think it's the same as it was before. You know, I, I think players can keep carrying on and still have some good years in them. Yeah, well, I mean, you think you think back in the day, an ACL, ACL going was the end of someone's career. Do you know what I mean? Now it's nine months. Nine months of getting big and strong in the gym and then coming back. Do you know what I mean? It's, um, I think sports science has taken on. I think the understanding as well, you know, I've written in my blog a couple of times about this. It's kind of, um, you know, British and Jap- Japanese mentalities can be quite similar in a way of like always do loads, work as hard as you can. And I think I think people have started to understand a little bit. It's like, well, you can afford to take your foot off the gas a little bit in between stuff um, and training a little bit more cleverly. But yeah, you're right. I mean, you look typically, unless you get someone like, you know, Craig Fallon that explodes onto the senior team, from men's judo, I will say mm. more, unless you get someone like Craig Fallon that explodes onto the senior scene, in his first couple of years of being a senior, for most, for most, it's just a it, it's a gradual incline. It's just small but consistent improvements and just clawing their way, clawing their way up. I suppose that's the difficulty as well, isn't it? Because you you want to bring on the younger, the younger judo players and progress them through, but you still don't really want to disregard all of the hard work that's gone in from the older judo players as well. And do you, what's your thoughts now? Do you feel like older judo players don't have as much opportunity if they're not winning the medals? Like, are you quick? Do you feel like you're quickly forgotten? Cause it wasn't that I long ago. Like, you were like, yeah, I feel like, yeah, 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 yeah. No, well, I mean, you know, I was sent to everything in the London Olympic cycle. And then, you know, 2013, when centralised centralization came in and listen, I chose not to centralise. I knew what I was choosing. Um, then virtually, virtually nothing since in comparison to like the London cycle and things. And I, the, the older players on the younger players, like without, you know, blowing my own trumpet, when we kick off again at Camberley, it's very good for the younger players to be training with me. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And Ashley and Fraser, I think that's going to bring them on the same way. Like when we were all younger and we were training with the older players and then on the British squads, do you know what I mean? British, like in that London cycle, I remember you know, I had Ewan Burton, I had Peter Cousins, I had James Miller, we had Matt Percy, we had Colin Oak. Do you know what I mean? Those fighting those people all the time. Then when you went out to fight a young German, it didn't feel so, do you know what I mean? It wasn't so daunting. Oh, I've got to go and fight this this world medalist here. Which, you know, Ewan gives me a bit of a kick in, but I fight him numerous times every squad training. Do you know what I mean? It's um, I feel like you've got some form of um, what's the word? Uh, you've got something to govern your ability, uh, to measure your ability on almost. Mm. 
with the older like for me it's um you know i look at all the all the great coaches and you know i was thinking about i was thinking about him today actually and like obviously you came through him and Brian Moore, when you used to train with Brian Moore, it was just willingness. As long as you had the willingness, mm. it didn't actually, you know, to Brian, the way he treated you and like, you know, it was fair enough. The best people got selected. That like always fair enough, you know. Um, but as long as you got stuck into it and you were willing to do it, do you know what I mean? It was like that, 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 that was accepted. You know what I mean? So for me, I'm kind of, I'm always going to be, now I'm going to be biased. When I was younger, I was biased towards younger players and now I'm older and biased towards <laughs> older players. Um, but for me, if people are willing to do it, why not? Do you know what I mean? We haven't got, you know, judo's a, judo's a minority sport in Britain. It's like we need as many people. Mm. And do you think that's, that's just the way judo's going to be now? It's, it, there's less of a shelf life for British judo car or do you think... Do you think there's going to be more opportunities for all the judo players now? I, don't, I honestly don't know. I honestly don't know what what it, what it's going to look like in the future. Um, I mean, if you look at if you look at the amount of people we've still got training, like just full time players, for example, there's actually quite a lot spread out over the whole country. There's a lot. There's a lot of people that are still willing to do it. Um, I kind of lost my trail of thought then. Um, Don't worry, I do all the time. I've been doing a podcast for ages now. Well, I've been doing judo for 27 years, getting thrown on top of your head for 27 years. It's surely, surely going to have some physical disadvantages, isn't it? Um, and and like even 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 regards to kind of like you know even if you're funded in judo, like you ain't earning. You know, when I was funded, so and I, I loved being a funded athlete and having that UK support money and going in every month. I think it was five, like just over five hundred pounds a month, which is which w- was a great, great help. But it ain't football money. Do you know what I mean? You're still having to live. You're not living a lavish lifestyle on on that money. And then with like obviously people that are self funded and things, it's um, you know, th- there's still a lot of people that love doing judo in the country because they honestly they just wouldn't put themselves through all of that. It's it's a bloody hard life. You, listen, it's the thing we all love doing, and it is brilliant. And you get you gain so many positive, life changing experiences doing it. Like I would not change any 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 of that. I would not change that decision for the world in any of the years that I've spent doing full time judo. Um, you know, but it is bloody hard. It is bloody hard. You wake up every day. You're tired. You're training. You're putting your body through it. You're making way. You're 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 having to survive through injuries. Don't need to tell you that. It's 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 not an easy choice. It's not an it's not it, it's not an e- it's not an easy choice, and it's an even more difficult choice to stick it out. Mm. Um. So, I think you are a little bit of an anomaly, and I think nowadays, generally, once people get to the end of their judo cycle, they I don't think there's many people now that stay involved. And you said that you think you will become into coaching what does that look like for you do you think would you like to go into more elite level coaching would you like to set up a club how, how do you feel like you'll progress out of your competition i mean camberley has a great system for the moment i'm happy 
doing what I'm doing. Can you still hear me, Vince? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's my um, my Bluetooth messing up. So yeah, I would do that. Honestly, I don't I don't know what that will look like. I don't know exactly what that's going to look like when I do turn around and say that my competitive career, like my competitive days, are done. All I know, I, the one thing that I am at the moment still certain on is I will always, always remain involved in judo in some way. Mm. You know, whether that whether that was um, working towards an if good enough, working in high performance, if that was opening a club, or even if that was, you know, getting a job and then just going to my local club, going to a local club and just doing a bit of training and then, you know, going from now, I, I I don't envision a, po- a point in my life where I won't be involved with judo. So, but how how that exactly looks like in the next few years in that transition period, I'm I'm, I'm unsure of just at the moment. So. Would you ever consider like working for a different country, or you know, no, I, no. no. How come? No. no, I'm I'm not patriotic in the classical sense at all. Um, like, I believe in culture. I believe in. I don't particularly believe, believe. Like this is going to sound like spouting off on a conspiracy theory philosophy. But I don't really believe in like invisible borders. You know, I lived right right near the Welsh border in in Trotcher. You know, I never saw it. All I saw was a road sign whenever I went into Wales. Uh, but at the same time, I'm very proud of being British. You know, so I wouldn't. Um, no, I don't envision myself ever going to coach for another country, no. Mm. And do you feel like you've got the skills, say tomorrow that was the end of your judo career, do you feel like you've got the skills that you could go off and earn a living from judo, like set up a club and, you know, produce your living? Or do you feel like you'd most probably have to get a job and then see how coaching fits in around it? No, I believe I could set something up, you know, and I've, I've been very fortunate in that in that um, in that aspect. Like the first schools company that I saw, if it, if it was going down a schools route initially, was was Carl Finney's, you know, judo edu- uh, judo, judo education. Mm-hmm. And Carl would say, like, I used to speak to to, to to Carl quite a lot when I was younger, and yeah, and he was one person that I would see, you know. And I know Carl was a grafter when he was a fighter. He was a tough fighter. He was a good fighter, you know. And he always used to say, like. And I would speak to him around the time when I when I first kind of fully committed and came down to Campbell. And he was like, look, mate, he's like, you will be all right whenever you finish. Whenever you finish, you'll be all right. If you put, and I think he said something like, if you put a quarter of the effort that you put into your full-time judo career into a business, you'll make a load of money. You know, and, and you know, yourself, seeing what you've gone and done, seeing what other people have gone and done that have finished, that have started schools or their own clubs and things. And it's, you know, that that stuff, it sounds cheesy, but that kept me just seeing you people do that and speaking to to, to, to you people that were doing that kept me in the game. It kept it kept me going uh, through some of those tough times, and obviously along with speaking to Luke and my coach and things. But I find it really inspiring and kind of motivating that you know, particularly around like you said that I know you you had to finish because of injuries. Mm. But that age of like 23, 24, 25, 26, you know, and I've still got plenty of really good close mates back home that, that aren't involved in judo and like seeing them getting 
good working careers and earning decent money and getting families and owning their own properties and living quite, quite a nice life. Like judo's brilliant, but there's a point where you live in a bunk bed for so long and it's like, no, I wouldn't mind just a few more comforts now of like, and, and, and for me, honestly, seeing that stuff and kind of working through that stuff, but speaking to, to, to people like yourself, people like Carl, you know, really kind of gave me, it's like, just stick this out and you will be all right whenever you do decide to call it a day. I think I, I hope that I hope that's bloody true now because I still haven't called it a day, but I hope it's true. I'm still clinging to that. Yeah. Well, I think, I think there are so many things like that come from full time and from training and committing yourself, dedicating yourself to a sport that actually there's like almost, I'm not going to say invisible benefits, but benefits that we don't consciously think of. Like when, when you're younger, you're fit, you're strong, you know, you become better at doing stuff, but actually the, the side of it, that the determination, the resilience, the hard work, you look at anybody successful in anything, those mental attributes are all the same. It's just whether can you apply, can you get your head around this new skill? And I think that's the same from going from a player to a coach. You know, when you're a player, you're very self-absorbed. It's all about you. What are you doing? What are you doing today? And it's just developing a little bit of empathy around, well, actually, how are you going to help somebody else do those things? You know, and that was a key change for me. I I still kept it very self-centered. You know, I I just changed the question like, <laughs> how am I going to make somebody better? You know, it's still about me, but <laughs> <laughs> you'll be one of those coaches, aren't you? Like, you know, Ronaldo, uh, what's his face? You know, the the famous women's yeah. coach in Cuba. He'd have their medals off them, wouldn't he? He used to hang them up in his hotel. <laughs> That's what I do. That's what I do to all of the juniors. I've got a loft up there full of their medals yeah. that they, they cry every time they give me. Well done, mate. And it over. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, I do. I do honestly think in, when it comes to business, it's just about can you change your mindset on what success is, I think, and, you know, redetermining in or what's the word, reevaluating what your goals are. I think that's the, that's the key to transition. I think the, the people that struggle, struggle to just shift their mindset. Mm. Yeah, maybe, maybe. I think, you know, ultimately, I, you know, I'm, not, I'm well aware, you know, but, but like, wasn't the best fighter in the world certainly wasn't the best British male fighter of my generation like you know I've got got some got some decent results but didn't get where I initially wanted to you know which is like everyone I wanted to be Olympic champion you know haven't haven't got there um but I can look in the mirror and say there's plenty of stuff I could have done differently there's plenty you know I had my own failings and struggles and things but I couldn't have committed any more. I couldn't have committed any more to myself. You know, for me, that's a real one. The one that I find, and it's kind of going slightly off topic, you know, would be, you know, the people, and I know we speak about like people that we knew when we were cadets and things like that. And it's like, you know, what I find interesting is there's a real belief in a lot of them that quit when they were like 16 or 17. And they really believe that they could have been Olympic champion. Yeah. And I'm kind of like, you've got no idea. You've got no idea. Like, you know, even just being full time, that doesn't guarantee success. It doesn't actually guarantee that you're even going to be competitive. 
It just mm. gives you the opportunity to be competitive and then hopefully you'll be successful after that. But I, I still find that still baffles me almost. And it kind of shows me, it's like, you know, and that, and, and it, it's a serious thing as well. Like they, they live with regret for the rest of their lives. I think at, at absolute minimum, just see how far you can get. If you do mm. that, that's enough. It's funny, isn't it? Because a lot of those, like I've spoken to a few of those and, uh, I've got a picture of the cadet European team and I'm the only person still involved in judo out of that male group that went. And uh, some of them haven't put their kit on in like 12 years and they still talk as if it was something they could have done, even though they never went, never even took a step on a mat further than, than cadets, which is crazy, isn't it? Absolutely crazy. Yeah, it is. It's, um, and I hear it all the time, all the time. It's like, you've got you've got no idea <laughs> now, and that's and that again that's not me shooting them down as well but it, it's kind of like you know it's just, like i said it's a serious thing as well because it clearly eats away at them mm. it clearly eats away at them and they think about it regularly because it's they see you and it's the first thing they want to tell you about how good their tire was back in the day and uh if certain things had gone slightly differently it would have been you know um for me, at absolute minimum, just see how far you can get. Find find the people that you can that you know. For me, like we did, I found the person I thought I could work best with that, that, that was very very good in a place that was very good with great great training partners and things. And I know how far you know. If I if I woke up tomorrow tomorrow morning and, and said that's the end of my career, you know, I kind of I know how far I could have got. Mm. And I suppose as well, you've got to deal with your own demons, haven't you? Like I remember, I got to a point. I remember being on the mat and the decision to not go any further. And it wasn't for me. It was never the pet physical pain of having a lot of injuries. I the thing that broke me in the end was actually the disappointment I felt for Luke. You know, and I just couldn't do it. I couldn't keep going through it. Like it was just like because you see yourself on the mat, you put your, your effort in, you train so hard. And, and it wasn't that Luke put any pressure on anybody like to do more than anything, but I knew that I just couldn't, I couldn't cope with that disappointment anymore. And I knew that like, I felt like if I carried on, nothing was going to change. There were, it was just good from the age of like 17 to 24. It was just a constant cycle of those injuries and those injuries and, there wasn't anything left for me that was able to deal with that disappointment. And then at that point, you've then got to deal with your demons and you've got to turn around and go, well, I was never going to be Olympic champion. I was never going to be a world champion. And I've most probably finished up fairly average for what I would like to have done. And it would never have worked for me doing, like I speak to people now about doing masters and stuff. It just wouldn't work for me because unless I could have been the best, I wasn't really that interested. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think as well, it's like, there's no, there's no like perfect transition out of, uh, you kind of need that obsess- obsession and you need to love it and you need to really want it to put, 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 I think to put yourself through that. It's like, there's no, no, no one waits. I, I doubt there's many people and I've certainly not spoken to anyone that just wokes up and goes, you know what, I'm done with that now. And then it's just lived a normal life like straight away after. There's all it seems to be that 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 kind of crossover scenario. And for me, it's I don't know. I think that, you know, for me, 
talking to myself, looking at it in the future, I just kind of got to accept that. It's like, mm -hmm. it's not going to be plain sailing. It's probably going to be a little bit difficult. It's going to be a complete lifestyle change. I don't, I don't know a life without loads of training, loads of competing, uh, without a goal to work towards every single day. Um, but just accepting that, yeah, it'll probably, it will be a bit tough. There's no, like I said, there's no, there's probably no perfect transition right there. No, it's only one person that springs to mind, uh, Rachel Wilding. And uh, so obviously she was at Cambly. She was European silver medalist. And that was almost like a light, because I still speak to Rachel and it was like a light switch. It was almost like, that's it, Judo's done. <laughs> like, I still speak to her now. And I'm like, she, you, do, do you fancy coming along to Judo? And she's like, no, why would I do that? Don't be so stupid. Like, that's it. Like, and she was a good Judo player, but she seems to be like one of those people. And I'll have to ask her whether there was anything. But yeah, she's the only person I can think of that I know of that, yeah, that just went, no, that's it. I'm done. Yeah, I kind of like what you said as well about like, um, you know, you didn't want to put Luke through that as well. It's, you know, the older you, I think the older you get. And I, <laughs> I, when I was 23, actually, it was after, it was after the London Games, you kind of start to realise just, just how, how much of a team effort it is and how much people give you their time. And I'm like, you know, and I, I always appreciated the time that people put into, in, into me, but I, um, I was very upset after losing my, my first round contest in London. And I, you managed to hide that quite well, actually. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> I basically verbally abused the reporter when I got back backstage and like got in a bit of trouble for it. Luke and Luke had to like hush that all up. And, you know, he, he was, he, you know, he's a consummate professional and everything he does, you know, and he kind of left it alone for a couple of months. I went back to Shrewsbury, had some time with my family. And then when we came back, you know, he kind of, he, he, he took me into a room and, you know, and very gently, but just let me know that, you know, that was pretty fucking selfish. Mm. And I kind of, kind of realised then, like, just how much, all you know, Luke and, and, and people kind of sacrifice and are in it with you. And yeah, you, you, you see it, like, you know how much your parents are into it when you're younger and all your family and all your friends and then, you know, the coaches that you're with you and you, you look at it and it's, you know, it's say all that stuff about, um, you know, players not being, being well paid. And it's like, you know, you look, you look at all the coaches across the country, whether they're volunteers in clubs, how much time and effort and passion and, and time that they give to all the people that are in their clubs. And then even like up to like high performance, you know, you look at, you look at, um, you look at how much Luke puts into it. It's his entire life. And it, it it's like, you know, if he he's a, he's a he's a clever man. If he wanted to go and earn serious money, like really serious money, I know he could go and do that. Mm. He doesn't. He he loves you and he wants to give it. And it's like you know, you look at, um, you know, I don't want to promote someone else's podcast while we're on judo talk, but like uh, there's no other it. there's no other podcast. Yeah, there's... yeah, there's no other podcast. <laughs> yeah, sorry, Neil. Um, <laughs> you you listen you listen to the to, to Neil's recent one with Billy Cusack, and like you know, there's real emotion in there. You and you know the older you get, you kind of see just how much the coaches are in it as much as you are mm. for you as well. It's like, and the, that, that, that passion's there. So, yeah. It's difficult, isn't it? Because we do, obviously, for us, we talk about Cambly, we talk about um, Luke, but that is our reality of Judo. That's our experience of Judo, isn't it? So when we say these things, I'm sure there's going to be people listening that 
could easily change those names and that place. And, you know, it's, I think many of the stories that we talk about in judo are repeated. And that's why I think podcasts within judo are really important because I think the more we can speak about it, the more we sort of realize how alike our journeys are. And, you know, there's always, always somebody who's going to be going through something similar somewhere else. And hopefully that can bring us together and break down some, barriers maybe you know not be so tribalist in in judo uh surely that's got to be a good thing and hopefully sharing these stories might encourage people you know to to ask more questions and you know maybe look into full-time judo or look at pursuing into their coaching careers you know yeah so i want to say a big thanks danny for your spending spending your evening with me that's very sweet um but yeah no thanks but i really appreciate it no, cheers for having me on, Vince. It was a lovely conversation, actually. Yeah, cheers, bud. Take care. A big thanks to Danny. Um, if you guys, I think it was brushed over in the actual interview a little bit, but he does write a weekly um, email um, to people about judo and about ideas and his philosophy on judo and training. And there's been some really good stuff, and he writes really, really well. Um, so I'll put a little link in the description of this um, episode for Danny's website where you can uh, subscribe to his mailing list and you know these tools these things these emailing lists are really really good Um, there's plenty of judo people putting out some really interesting content so yeah it costs you nothing to subscribe Um, uh, so yeah I just recommend it Um, so I think we're like three months now 12 episodes in that's three months of um podcasts every week and yeah i'm really happy with it i think i've been thinking about uh how to progress the podcast a little bit more and make it a little bit different and actually i had a message from tom hayton uh, on instagram and he just asked me a question how how do you be a better judo player? And it got me thinking, obviously, there's loads of things that we could do, and lots of it would be, I, I would film stuff like that on YouTube, which I'm struggling to do at the moment just because of the rules um, regarding contact, um, doing judo with adults. But is is that something you guys would like to listen to? Like, if I could get another coach on, and we talk about specific parts of judo, so for example, what tactics would we employ for uh, a fighter to be a better judoka and by better I mean that's like somebody who we deem's got superior judo because the best judo player doesn't always win in judo um it might be uh the idea of um how you fight an opposite handed opponent you know tactics and ideas and I was wondering whether you would lose some of that um on a on a podcast because obviously when we're doing our youtube stuff when i'm filming things it's really easy to see and i wondered whether it would push us as coaches um having a chat around judo whether we could do a good enough job of explaining our ideas and and trying to get those across so what do you think about that do you think that would be a good idea a good addition to the podcast it would definitely mix it up a little bit the other idea i've got is to get a guest and i i'm hopefully get maybe get the same guest or maybe a couple of guests and before a major championship such as like the world championships we could talk about the the people in the draw things we're looking forward to who we think could win and then almost doing a review show around that and I think 
that on top of the interviews that we're doing um so for next week um i'm hopefully hopefully going to get this recorded in time we're we're going to talk to somebody else about skill acquisition um we talk about snc you know lots of different things i just think adding adding those little elements to the podcast might might create a different dynamic but I'd really like to hear your thoughts on that. Give me, you know, send me an email, vince at vincekillcorn.co.uk or, you know, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, wherever I'm on the platforms. The only one I don't use is TikTok, I think, and I don't really understand it. So that most probably says something a bit more about me. Uh, And also before we go, right, there's so many listeners uh, out there at the moment listening to the podcast well, just to ask you, if you're listening to the podcast and you've got this far through and you're enjoying the podcast, whatever your platform you're listening to it, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, um, TuneIn, Google Podcasts, whatever one you're listening, if you could just subscribe to the podcast, give it five stars, that would be really, really great. It really helps. I don't know why it helps, but it does. And yeah, just share it. Tell people about it. Don't keep it a secret. I'd really like this podcast to continue growing. And it only does that if you guys get out there and show it, you know, share it with people. If there's a specific episode that you think is really good, you know, share that one. If you think it will resonate with somebody, just, yeah, just pass it on. It's really, really important um, for, for me uh, to keep this podcast going, for it to, to keep getting listeners. So, yeah, if you don't mind, give it a good share. And I would really, really appreciate that. So I think, you know... A little bit shorter this episode, but I think uh, it was still, I really enjoyed it, as I said at the beginning. I thought it was uh, interesting. Um, But let me know what you think. Get in contact. And hopefully I'll speak to you guys next week. Judo talk, talk, judo talk.